HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Tamar Haspel. Tamar is a columnist for the Washington Post. Her column, Unearth, focuses on the intersection of food and science. She's a force of nature and food. In high school, she was awarded the Teacher's Pest Award for her incessant curiosity and willingness to challenge authority. Now, she has a James Beard Award to match. Let's have a listen. I'd like to ask you, Tamar, how you came up with this idea of a column called Unearthed. Where did you begin? How did, how does this happen? It was a long road, Louisa. I started writing about food in the 90s. I hate to even fess up because now everybody knows how old I am. But I've been writing about food for almost 25 years now. And way, way back in the day, back when uh, everybody thought eating low fat was the way to go, my mother and I actually published a newsletter called dreaded broccoli with the tagline, enjoying the food you know you should eat. And uh, at, at me, 1.8... Dreaded, dreaded broccoli? Dreaded broccoli. And th- this was this was a, a family <laughs> joke between my parents because in the 80s, when restaurants wanted to bulk up the plate, they would always put big things of broccoli on it. And so it became a joke between my parents. And then it became the name of the newsletter. We told little stories. We had recipes. And people liked it. And eventually it caught the eye of the legendary food editor who died recently, Maria Guarnaschelli. And she was at Scribner at the time. And she signed us to write the book of the same name, Dreaded Broccoli. Well, it was a critical success. <laughs> and But even though it didn't go very far, when you do a book with Maria Guarnaschelli, it opens a lot of freelance doors for you. So that's when I quit my day job and I started writing full time. 
And I wrote a lot in those days for women's magazines. I wrote about nutrition and diet and weight and exercise for magazines like, you know, Women's Health and Glamour and Self and Prevention. And it was interesting. And I learned a lot. And I learned to write because when you write for people who pay you, they tell you when they don't like it. (laughs) And so I really honed my skills doing that. That was when my husband and I lived in New York City. In 2008, we took a lifestyle U-turn and ended up on Cape Cod. And so here we are. We went from the Upper West Side of Manhattan to this house, which is basically a shack on a little lake with two acres of woods. And I'm like, okay, well, what can we do here that we couldn't do in Manhattan? And the answer was all kinds of things. And so I, I remember when we'd only been here six months or something. And we'd already started a little bit of a garden and it looked like we could get clams out in the ocean. We could fish. And I kind of got captivated with this idea of getting your own food. And I said to Kevin, honey, do you think that we could eat something every day that we grow or hunt or fish or gather? And now you don't know Kevin. He's wildly supportive of everything that I do. And he is curious and he loves a challenge. And he looks at me and he goes, not a chance. I'm like, not a chance? Who are you? And what have you done with Kevin? I gradually talk him into this. And we started and I start the blog. It was called Starving Off the Land. And I have a book coming out in a couple months that is based on it. And it really got me interested in where food comes from. And I started writing more about that and less about nutrition and and diets. I started doing some things for the Washington Post. And it struck me that there are a lot of misconceptions about where food comes from, because most people are pretty far removed from the source of the things that they eat. And so at one point, I finally, I pitched it to my editor, Joe Yonan, who's wonderful, And I about swallowed my tongue when I bought it. I mean, who gets a column in a major newspaper? I was thrilled. And would never look back. But you write a lot about science. I mean, I follow you on Twitter, too. You're Mm -hmm. probably one of my favorite Twitter feeds. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But you do a lot of, like, everybody thinks this, but there's nothing to support that. Well, I'm so, you know, when you graduate from high school, And like they vote on like most likely to succeed and all that stuff. And I definitely wasn't most likely to succeed. But in my high school, they had this thing called teacher's pest. And I was a shoe in. My brother won it the year before. He was a year ahead of me in school. And I was totally, I knew I had the lock on teacher's pest. And it wasn't until I was probably in my 30s that my mother told me, and I don't know how she found this out. I have to ask her that I got 80% of the vote when you could vote for anybody. (laughs) And so I'm fessing up that this is the kind of personality I have. So when something comes down the pike and people think it's true, my first inclination is to say, could that possibly be true? Might that be wrong? And then, of course, I have to find out. I just have the kind of nature that, I mean, it kind of does make me good at my job, but man, I'm bad at parties. Or you're good at parties because you always have one little nugget that someone else doesn't have. Or actually probably a whole 
palmful of nuggets. Can you give me an example of some of your, um, I think of you as a debunker, um, of some of your recent debunks? Well, I don't know. I don't like to think so much as debunking because it's not usually quite that cut and dry. But a couple of things that I've written about that I think do take issue with ideas that have taken hold among people who care about food. One of them is the idea that if we change farm subsidies, so like they don't support the commodity system in corn and soy, it would change the price of food and it would make junk food more expensive and better food less expensive. And it would change the way that people eat. But if you run the numbers, it just doesn't pan out that way because subsidies are such a small fraction of the total money involved in corn and soy. And then if you if you take your average Twinkie, the food costs of that are only 10 to 15% of the actual Twinkie. So if you reduce the cost 10% even by doing this, which would be a pretty big move, you only reduce the cost of the Twinkie by 1%. And that's not going to really change anything. One of the things that blows people's minds is that vegetables are so much more inherently expensive to grow than corn and soy. I mean, you look at the per acre costs and corn can be like 700 bucks and broccoli can be like 5,000 or more. So there's an inherent price difference between the kinds of foods that we make out of corn and soy and wheat and the vegetables and fruits that everybody's been telling us to eat more of. That's a big one, I would think. It's really interesting because you do follow the economics of it and I can't help but agree with your analysis. But you've also been very critical of some of the nutrition advice that comes out as well. Yes, um, I'm afraid I have. Teacher's yeah. pest rides again. Teacher's pest. I love it. I love it. And I have to say, I had a conversation with an epidemiologist at Harvard just the other day, and she's wonderful, Deirdre Tobias. She's on Twitter, and she's totally game. She really engages on these things. And one of the things I told her is that, God, I know how irritating it must be to work your whole career. You get your PhD, you're teaching at Harvard, and this two-bit journalist has taken issue with your work online. I told her how much I really appreciated her like being game and always engaging civilly and constructively, which is also what I try and do. I think one of the misconceptions we have about nutrition globally, I mean, in the main, is that we can actually, we have the tools to figure out what's best for humans because we really don't. And this is why we have so many conflicting headlines about coffee is good for you. No, coffee is going to kill you. Eggs are fine. Eggs are bad. It's because the tools we have are these blunt force instruments we have two of them basically we can we have observational research and then we have controlled trials and they're both so limited in completely different ways that it's really hard to tease out any small effects that foods have on our health and we've already figured out the big ones we figured out the deficiency diseases and things like that and and that kind of research was really good for that but once it comes down to like trying to figure out is olive oil good for you are nuts good for you is saturated fat bad for you we get some tantalizing hints but we don't have anything like the specificity to to recommend a particular diet. And that's frustrating for people because they want to know what to eat. Well, it's kind of like a zoological observation because people can't really accurately keep a food diary. 
They just can't. That's the thing. So if you have faith in these big observational trials, like the nurse's health, what the name of it is, and you have faith that the foods are accurately reported, I tell everybody, go and try and fill out one of these questionnaires for yourself because they ask you how many servings of cabbage you've had over the last year. I'm a cabbage eater, but I couldn't begin to tell you how many servings of cabbage I've eaten over the last year. And then, of course, you have to go on to answer about every other food. It's not really feasible. But people are working on better ways to collect that data. And so in the future, maybe we'll be able to do a little better with these. What's the thing that frustrates you the most about the way most nutrition and food stories are reported? They're reported as though we have the line to the truth. So studies that are suggestive of an association in the headlines become causal. We see olive oil associated with better cardiovascular outcomes. All of a sudden, you know, better heart health with olive oil. And again, this is people sort of grasping at straws because the food media has left people desperately confused about what to eat. And every new headline and every new story, rather than clearing it up, I think muddies the waters even more. So what I would love to be able to convey to people and what I would love for the food media to be able to convey to people is that this is all extremely uncertain. We don't know what the optimal diet for humans is. And the optimal diet for you is going to be different from the optimal diet for me. Our ancestors came from different places and had metabolisms that were optimized for different diets. I want people to feel like this is freeing because, okay, we can't recommend anything specific. That means, you know, within reason, you get to eat what you like. I say it all the time pretty much the most specific recommendation we can make is to eat a wide variety of whole or whole-ish foods that you enjoy because we don't know which nutrients you need in what quantities. And so the best hedge against uncertainty is variety and foods that have their nutrients intact. So go to town, eat things you like. And all you have to worry about is eating them in quantities consistent with the weight you want to be. And that's almost literally all the advice that the evidence supports. What about the advice that says, eat a lot of chocolate, drink a lot of red wine, coffee will keep me alive forever. I know, there is a God. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because I'm writing about that right now. My column for January is about whether moderate drinking really is good for you. And uh, (laughs) I'm afraid I have some bad news, Louisa. (laughs) Damn, damn. You're no fun at all. So I know. You get people pretty upset. Oh, yeah. Well, people are easily upset. And (laughs) the thing about Twitter is it's like people want to be upset. I'm like, seriously? You're going to fight about carbohydrate metabolism? All right. I understand partisanship when it comes to the future of our democracy. But insulin resistance? Really? It kind of blows me away how vicious and partisan arguments about nutrition have gotten. And they're they're just as bad in agriculture. And, you know, whatever the topic, people just divide themselves into sides and lob nasties over the parapet. It's really sort of disheartening. And I will say that my tolerance for nastiness and snark has gone down and my attempt 
to be constructive and to be kind has ramped up. But I don't always succeed. I've been known to lose my temper a little bit, too. But So I'm not a paragon of virtue on Twitter or anything else. But I do try and have the kinds of conversations that I think can be constructive. But people really want guidance. That's yeah, they really they do. do. And what you often write is that nothing is there is no guidance. Well, so I'm trying to undo at least 40 years of the steady diet of disempowerment that American eaters have been fed. First, they get fed this line about how difficult it is to understand what's good for you, that it's all sciencey and that you have to know a probiotic from a prebiotic and, you know, insulin from ghrelin. And, and you don't have to know any of that stuff to eat healthfully. But people are convinced that it's hard and it's sciencey and it's technical. So people have gotten the idea that deciding what to eat is the province of experts. And I don't think it is. I think just about everybody can make decisions for herself about what to eat, that it isn't difficult, that you don't have to have advanced degrees in nutrition. After all, I've got no advanced degrees, so of course I think that. I think we need to empower people. People have to believe that making decisions about what they eat is something they are perfectly well-equipped to do on their own. Well, they do eat on their own. They do. Right. And people, I mean, as a, as a human species, we, we ate our way to planetary dominance with no expert intervention whatsoever. And, and this is something that humans can do. I don't know when it became a topic of study. I mean, as a parent, long before I was a parent, long before I was anything, I remember taking as gospel, and I was thinking about it a few days ago, uh, Francis Moore LePay's essential, eight essential time. amino acid diet for a oh, yeah. minute and using complementary proteins. And I asked myself a few days ago when I was making one of the recipes that I've always made, which is um, kind of a roll-up lasagna, whether mm-hmm. that was true or not. Whether it's possible that if you put all of these essential amino acids in one mouthful, that you are healthier or that it is healthier or that your body metabolizes it. And I realized I had no goddamn idea. (laughs) And you know what, Louisa? It makes no goddamn difference. As long as you're getting a full complement of protein and you're getting those amino acids in something you're eating, it doesn't have to be at the same meal. But this is a great example of convincing people that. They can't understand food and they need you to help them. And what I'm trying to do is helping people by saying they don't need me to help them, which I know it's pretty meta, but but that's the gist of it. We'll be back with Tamar Haspel in a minute, and we will hear how she became a Cape Cod oyster farmer. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. 
PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. And we are back with Tamar Haspel. I've been dying to ask you about your life as an oyster farmer. Oh, yes. Tell me about that. So when we came to Cape Cod, and we started that whole, what can we do here that we couldn't do in Manhattan? My husband, Kevin, was looking for something to do. Now, when we lived in New York, he uh, he worked as a commodity trader. He worked on the floor at the New York Board of Trade. And he was still trading, but that all went online. And so he was looking for some other things to do. And people we knew were in the oyster business. And so he apprenticed for a year with a local guy who we knew, a friend, and learned a little bit about the business. And then we were in the right place at the right time to get a lease, which is the hard part of starting up an oyster farm. And we just dove in. And, you know, we were extremely fortunate because the oystering community here was very helpful to us. And we learned how to do it. And we got better and better at it. And our last few years, we raised quarter million beautiful oysters. Now, COVID really put a crimp in that. It changed the nature of demand for oysters. And we've been partners with a much larger company, and they've sort of taken over our farm. And we're getting a little old. It's very heavy, difficult work, which was one of the reasons we did it, because we wanted to stay fit. But I think we're sort of transitioning out of that right now. But I learned tons, not just about raising oysters, but what it's like to raise a crop for money. And if you're writing about agriculture in the food system, that's an invaluable experience. And it has served me well and helped me navigate the world of agriculture and food systems with a slightly different perspective. That's fascinating. And did you love oysters to begin with? Or you did? Oh, yeah. Or just... <laughs> in fact, Kevin tells a story. When we lived in New York, one day he had a rotten day. And I met him downtown, and we went to uh, to PJ Clark's, which is an oyster institution in New York City. It was right next to the the Trade Center, and they had dollar oysters until like five o'clock. And I'm like, oh, it was like four fifty. I'm like, ooh, can I get two dozen oysters? Order them now, and then you know, bring them after five. Is that okay? And the waitress was like, sure. And Kevin's like you can't eat two dozen oysters. I'm like, yeah, I can eat two dozen oysters. I say to the waitress, make it three. 
He says, you can't eat three dozen oysters. And so we bet the usual. And of course I can eat the three dozen oysters because I can eat probably five dozen oysters. I'm an excellent eater. And Kevin still complains about having been sandbagged at PJ Clark's that day. I loved oysters. And now it's funny because being an oyster farmer has made me a much more picky consumer of oysters. And I only eat them when they're at their best. And we are lucky because we grow oysters in what Kevin calls the Napa Valley of oysters. We happen to have perfect conditions down here on Cape Cod in Barnstable Harbor. And, you know, we can't take credit for growing world's class oysters. I mean, we can do some things, but basically it's the conditions that do it. And so now I've become really picky about my oysters. That's what it's done to me. Well, I love the idea that you do understand what it is like to raise food, not as an entertainment, not like people who, you know, suddenly get chickens and they're living on Mm -hmm. an estate somewhere in Oyster Bay or something like that. No, but so what did you learn? Do you have a lot more empathy for the sort of workaday work of farmers and fishermen? Oh, yeah. You learn a lot when you do it. First of all, you learn about just how risky it is. One bad year and, you know, if a disease hits Barnstable Harbor, we could lose our entire crop. And that happened to us one year. And you also understand the backbreaking labor that goes into farm work. And oysters is one of the least automated areas of farming there is. Oysters are difficult for machines for a number of reasons. And now they're beginning to automate it more. But it's like farming rocks. You just have to move heavy things from place to place all the time. And I would like everybody to have to do some heavy farm labor before they weigh in on the virtues of small farms and subsistence farming and things like that. Because the reason people leave the farm is because it's really hard. I totally agree with you. I mean, the kind of rosy picture of the the farmer who goes outside with their, you know, three beautiful blonde children and delights in the perfect tomato. Sometimes I see things like that and I just want to shake them. (laughs) I know. And I like I'm totally in favor of growing food every which way, because we're also the people who have the chicken coop in the back and we've raised our own turkeys and ducks and and pigs and we've grown mushrooms and we have a garden and we plant fruit trees and we forage and we fish and we hunt. We do all of this stuff. And I I get how compelling it is because it's very compelling to me but it's different from farming. Do you find there's any kind of a disconnect would be between the fact that you're so involved on a on a granular level with the production of food and you're writing about things often that have to do with lab studies? Yeah, no, I, I actually think it's great because I get both ends of the spectrum and it keeps things interesting and it helps me actually, when the lab studies are about agriculture, it sort of helps me understand them. But I'm interested in both ends of food and nutrition. I think that reading about this stuff is also compelling, but there's something sort of uniquely powerful about growing or foraging or fishing your own food. I have a theory about it and nobody's ever really studied it. So I'm probably talking through my hat. Have you ever had a vegetable garden? Do you grow any of your own food? Have you ever caught a fish? I grow rosemary. I can do herbs. I, it'll be... okay. All right. <laughs> no, I, so... I am a black thumb person. You don't want to All right. Know. <laughs> so you're not the best person to ask. But I ask people all the time, people who garden, people who fish, 
Does that food feel different to you than the food that you buy? And every single one of them says yes, that there's something really compelling about acquiring your own food with your own two hands. This is a primordial need to feed yourself, to reproduce and feed yourself. Those are the two things that humans have had to do since the primordial ooze. It's an accomplishment that's different from like writing a book or acing a test or getting a promotion. It's like brainstem level kind of satisfaction. And there's nothing quite like it. I love it. Did you study science? Was that part of nah. who you are? No. You just I have a degree in English. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I barely squeaked through undergraduate. But, you know, one of the great things about living in a free society is that information is there for the taking and you don't have to pay anybody hundreds of thousands of dollars for the keys to the kingdom. And you can learn stuff. And one of the great things about being a columnist at the Washington Post is that I get to send emails to people and say, hey, I don't get this. Could you explain it to me? And you know what they do? It's amazing. These like really smart, busy, famous people will pick up the phone and explain shit to me. It's the best thing ever. (laughs) It's awesome. My job is so great. But it does require personal confidence to do that. And not, and I don't know. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure about that. But it, it just requires curiosity. You just, there's so much I want to know. And there are people out there in the world who know it. And I get to call them and they explain it to me. Sure beats digging ditches. Hi, I'm Tamar. Got a minute? <laughs> it's kind of like that. And But it's been like that my whole career as as a journalist. I think I have found that scientists... And researchers, academics, and people from other walks of life, too, have been just astonishingly generous with their time and their expertise. I and other journalists, you know, we couldn't do our jobs without the kindness of strangers. And it's something I'm always grateful for. When we first started talking, you were telling me that you're getting ready to record the audio book for your new book. Talk to me about the book. I did this blog, Starving Off the Land, about getting our own food all this time. And this is like the revamp of the blog. It was about our bumbling efforts to do things that we've never done before. So, you know, what do you do if you've never built a chicken coop and you got to build a chicken coop? Well, of course, you go online, you see how other people build chicken coops. But then at the end of the day, you got to design the chicken coop and build the chicken coop and you could screw up. We screwed up a lot over the years. And, you know, one of the stories in the book, the book, by the way, is called To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. Love it. And it has some of the stories of successes, but also failures, and including the chicken plucker that we made out of a washing machine that didn't quite burn down the house. But it was touch and go. <laughs> it's the story, basically, it's the story of jumping in. It's a story about not having any expertise or any experts to consult, really, except YouTube, and just trying Full, full of stuff. experts, though. Full of experts. Absolutely. Oh, you can learn anything on YouTube. And it was so great because when we lived in New York, I used to write about things that other people did. And here I started doing things myself. And I never would have done it without Kevin. He's extremely capable. And also, he's 
very determined when he starts something. And I learned to do all kinds of things that I couldn't do before. I learned how to build things. I learned how to use power tools. I learned how to care for chickens. I learned about trucks and boats. I can back up a trailer. I'm ridiculously proud of that. I learned to do some things that I wasn't even sure I wanted to learn how to do. I can shoot, field dress, and break down a deer. It's so funny because I've worked my whole career to be a better writer. But if you ask me what I'm proud of, well, I can shoot, field dress, and break down a deer because that was way out of my comfort zone. It was hard for me to do. I walked away with a real sense of accomplishment that hunters who have been hunting since they were five would sort of laugh at because they take it right in stride. But I didn't take it in stride. It was hard for me. And this is one of the great things about getting dirty in service of dinner. You learn things. You push yourself. It was quite the adventure for me. And so that's what the book is about. It's about how getting dirty in service of dinner can change you and it can change your diet too. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I would not have imagined that you had told me that you could feel dress a deer. I've been reading a book about vampires. They can do that, but... (laughs) Oh, really? I didn't know that. (laughs) Wow. Well, Tamar, it's just so great to talk to you. You just never well, it's know. It's nice what you're to talk say. to you. <laughs> this COVID thing is keeping us from our friends. I know. I know. And you are fun. The book comes out when? The book comes out March 8th. It is available for pre order wherever books are sold, or most places books are sold. Pre orders help authors a lot. So if you think you'd enjoy the book, please go and pre order. I hope that people connect with it. I hope people enjoy it. I, I hope it resonates with people. I love it. Thank you so much. This is pretty close to a perfect conversation. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> to boldly grow. To boldly I, grow. I love it. Because, you know, there's such a danger of, of being earnest when you write about these things. And I want people to understand it's a joke, you know. <laughs> well, it is interesting about being earnest. I mean, th- that's one of the things I think that makes you such an exceptionally fine columnist. You're writing, you're very earnest, but you take no prisoners and you have fun with it. I do have one with it. If I'm ever too earnest, you send me an email because I don't want to be too earnest. But it is serious stuff, and I do take it seriously. I get a lot of email from people, and one of the things people say is that they do appreciate that I make them laugh. So. <laughs> you make me laugh. <laughs> well, good. That's a good start. I, I am, however, an easy mark, though. I will tell you that. <laughs> That's part of your charm. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, sweetie. This thank is Thank you. And Mike, thank you. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 